Chapter Five of Demos: A Story of English Socialism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Farheen. Demos: A Story of English Socialism by George Gissing. Chapter Five. On ordinary days, Richard of necessity rose early. A holiday did not lead him to break the rule, for free hours were precious. He had his body well under control. Six hours of sleep he found sufficient to keep him in health. And temptations to personal ease, in whatever form, he resisted as a matter of principle. Easter Monday found him downstairs at half-past six. His mother would today allow herself another hour. Arry would be down just in time to breakfast, not daring to be late. The princess might be looked for some time in the course of the morning. She was licensed. Richard, for purposes of study, used the front parlour. In drawing up the blind, he disclosed a room precisely resembling in essential features hundreds of front parlours in that neighbourhood or indeed in any working-class district of london everything was clean most things were bright-hued or gristling of surface there was the gilt-framed mirror over the mantelpiece with a yellow clock which did not go and glass ornaments in front there was a small round table before the window supporting wax fruit under a glass case there was a hearthrug with a dazzling pattern of imaginary flowers. On the blue cloth of the middle table were four showily bound volumes, arranged symmetrically. On the head of the sofa lay a covering worked of blue and yellow Berlin wools. Two armchairs were draped with long, white antimacassars, ready to slip off at a touch. As in the kitchen, there was a smell of cleanliness, of furniture polish, hearthstone, and black lead. I should mention the ornaments of the walls. The pictures were a striking landscape of the Swiss type, an engraved portrait of Garibaldi, an unframed view of a certain insurance office, a British baby on a large scale from the Christmas number of an illustrated paper. The one singular feature of the room was a small glass-doored bookcase, full of volumes. They were all of Richard's purchasing. To survey them was to understand the man at all events on his intellectual side. Without exception, they belonged to that order of literature which, if studied exclusively and for its own sake, as here it was, brands a man indelibly, declaring at once the incompleteness of his education and the deficiency of his instincts. Social, political, religious, under these three heads the volumes classed themselves, and each class was represented by productions of the extreme school. The books which a bright youth of fair opportunities reads as a matter of course, rejoices in for a year or two, then throws aside forever, were here treasure to be the guides of a lifetime. Certain writers of the last century, long ago become only historically interesting, were for Richard an armory whence he girded himself for the battles of the day. Cheap reprints or translations of Malthus, of Robert Owen, 
of Walney's ruins, of Thomas Paine, of sundry works of Voltaire, ranked upon his shelves. Moreover, there was a large collection of pamphlets titled wonderfully, and of yet more remarkable contents the authoritative utterances of contemporary gentlemen and ladies who made it the end of their existence to prove that there cannot by any possibility be such a person as satan that the story of creation contained in the book of genesis is on no account to be received that the begetting of children is a most deplorable oversight that to eat flesh is wholly unworthy of a civilized being that if every man and woman performed their quota of the world's labor it would be necessary to work for one hour and thirty-seven minutes daily no jot longer and that the author in each case is the one person capable of restoring dignity to a downtrodden race and happiness to a blasted universe alas alas on this food had richard mutimer pastured his soul since he grew to manhood on this and this only english literature was to him a sealed volume poetry he scarcely knew by name of history he was worse than ignorant having looked at his period and that through distorting media and congratulating himself on his clear vision because he saw men as trees walking the bent of his mind would have led him to natural science but opportunities of instruction were lacking and the chosen directors of his prejudice taught him to regard every fact every discovery as for or against something a library of pathetic significance the individual alone considered viewed as representative not without alarming suggestiveness to those who can any longer trouble themselves about the world's future one dreams of the age when free thought in the popular sense will have become universal when art shall have lost its meaning worship its holiness when the bible will only exist in comic editions and shakespeare be downcried by most sweet voices as a mountebank of reactionary tendencies richard was to lecture on the ensuing sunday at one of the branch meeting places of his society he engaged himself this morning in collecting certain data of a statistical kind he was still at his work when the sound of the postman's knock began to be heard in the square coming from house to house drawing nearer in each repetition richard paid no heed to it he expected no letter yet it seemed there was one for some member of the family the letter carrier's regular tread ascended the five steps to the door and then two small thunderclaps echoed through the house there was no letter-box richard went to answer the knock an envelope addressed to himself in a small formal hand his thoughts still busy with other things he opened the letter mechanically as he re-entered the room he had never in his life been calmer the early hour of study had kept his mind pleasantly active whilst his breakfast appetite sharpened itself never was man less prepared to receive startling intelligence he read then raised his eyes and let them stray from the papers on the table to the wax fruit before the window thence to the young leafage of the trees around the baptist chapel he was like a man whose face had been overflashed by lightning he read again then holding the letter behind him 
closed his right hand upon his beard with thoughtful tension. He read a third time, then returned the letter to its envelope, put it in his pocket, and sat down again to his book. He was summoned to breakfast in ten minutes. His mother was alone in the kitchen. She gave him his bloater and his cup of coffee, and he cut himself a solid slice of bread and butter. Was the letter for you? she asked. He replied with a nod and fell patiently to work on the dissection of his bony delicacy. In five minutes Henry approached the table with a furtive glance at his elder brother, but Richard had no remark to make. The meal proceeded in silence. When Richard had finished, he rose and said to his mother, "'Have you that railway guide I brought home a week ago?' "'I believe I have somewhere. Just look in the cupboard.' The guide was found. Richard consulted it for a few moments. "'I have to go out of London,' he then observed. "'It's just possible I shan't get back to-night.' A little talk followed about the arrangements of the day, and whether anyone was likely to be at home for dinner. Richard did not show much interest in the matter. He went upstairs whistling, and changed the clothing he wore for his best suit. In a quarter of an hour he had left the house. He did not return till the evening of the following day. It was presumed that he had gone after a job. When he reached home, his mother and Alice were at tea. He walked to the kitchen fireplace, turned his back to it, and gazed with a peculiar expression at the two who sat at the table. "'Dick's got to work,' observed Alice after a glance at him. "'I can see that in his face.' "'Have you, Dick?' asked Mrs. Mutimer. "'I have. Work likely to last.' "'So we'll hope.' commented his mother. Where is it? A good way out of London. Pour me a cup, mother. Where's Arry? Gone out as usual. And why are you having tea with your hat on, princess? Because I'm in a hurry, if you must know everything. Richard did not seek further information. He drank his tea standing. In five minutes Alice had bustled away for an evening with friends. Mrs. Mutimer cleared the table without speaking. "'Now, get your swing, mother, and sit down,' began Richard. "'I want to have a talk with you.' The mother cast a rather suspicious glance. There was an impressiveness in the young man's look and tone which disposed her to obey without remark. "'How long is it,' Richard asked, when attention waited upon him, "'since you heard anything of father's uncle, my namesake?' Mrs. Mutimer's face exhibited the dawning of intelligence, an unwrinkling here and there, a slight rounding of the lips. "'Why, what of him?' she asked in an undertone, leaving a needle unthreaded. "'The old man's just dead.' Agitation seized the listener, agitation of a kind most unusual in her. Her hands trembled, her eyes grew wide. "'You haven't heard anything of him lately?' pursued Richard. "'Heard? Not I. No more did your father ever since two years afore we was married. I'd always thought he was dead long ago. What of him, Dick?' "'From what I'm told, I thought you'd perhaps been keeping things to yourself. 
twouldn't have been unlike you, mother. He knew all about us, so the lawyer tells me. The lawyer? Well, I'd better out with it. He's died without a will. His real property, that means his houses and land, belongs to me. His personal property, that's his money, will have to be divided between me, Alice and Harry. You're out of the sharing, mother. He said it jokingly, but Mrs. Mutimer did not join in his laugh. Her palms were closely pressed together, still trembling. She gazed straight before her with a far-off look. His houses, his land, she murmured as if she had not quite heard. What did he want with more than one house? The absurd question was all that could find utterance. She seemed to be reflecting on the point. Would you like to hear what it all comes to? Richard resumed. His voice was unnatural, forcibly suppressed, quivering at pauses. His eyes gleamed, and there was a centre of warm colour on each of his cheeks. He had taken a notebook from his pocket, and the leaves rustled under his tremulous fingers. The lawyer, a man called Yottle, just gave me an idea of the different investments and so on. The real property consists of a couple of houses in Belwick, both let, and an estate at a place called Wonley. The old man had begun mining there. There's iron. I've got my ideas about that. I didn't go into the house. People are there still. Now, the income. He read his notes. So much in railways, so much averaged yearly from ironworks in Belwick, so much in foreign securities, so much disposable at home. Total. Stop, Dick, stop, uttered his mother under her breath. Them figures frighten me. I don't know what they mean. It's a mistake. They're leading you astray. Now mind what I say. There's a mistake. No man with all that money would die without a will. You won't get me to believe it, Dick. Richard laughed excitedly. Ha, believe it or not, mother, I've got my ears and eyes, I hope. And there's a particular reason why he left no will. There was one, but something, I don't know what, happened just before his death, and he was going to make a new one. The will was burnt. He died in search on a Sunday morning. If he'd lived another day, he'd have made a new will. It's no more a mistake than the Baptist chapel is in the square. A comparison which hardly conveyed all Richard's meaning. But he was speaking in agitation, more and more quickly, at last almost angrily, Mrs. Mutimer raised her hand. Be quiet a bit, Dick. It took me too sudden. I feel queer-like. There was silence. The mother rose as if with difficulty and drew water in a teacup from the filter. When she resumed her place, her hands prepared to resume sewing, she looked up solemnly, sternly. Dick, it's bad, bad news. I'm an old woman, and I must say what I think. It upsets me. It frightens me. I thought he might have left you a hundred pounds. Mother, don't talk about it till you've had time to think, said Richard stubbornly. If this is bad news, what the deuce would you call good? Just because I've been born and bred a mechanic, does that say I've got no common sense or self-respect? Are you afraid I shall go and drink myself to death? You talk like the people who make it their business to sneer at us, the improvidence of the working classes, and such d d slander. 
It's good news for me, and it'll be good news for many another man. Wait and see. The mother became silent, keeping her lips tight and struggling to regain her calmness. She was not convinced, but in an argument with her eldest son, she always gave way, affection and the pride she had in him aiding her instincts of discretion. In practice, she still maintained something of maternal authority, often gaining her point by merely seeming offended. To the two who had not yet reached the ear of emancipation, she allowed in essentials no appeal from her decision. Between her and Richard, there had been many a sharp conflict in former days, invariably ending with the lad's submission. The respect which his mother exacted, he in truth felt to be her due, and it was now long since they had openly been at issue on any point. Mrs. Mutimer's views were distinctly conservative, and, hitherto, she had never taken Richard's radicalism seriously. On the whole, she had regarded it as a fairly harmless recreation for his leisure hours, decidedly preferable to a haunting of public houses and music halls. The loss of his employment caused her a good deal of uneasiness, but she had not ventured to do more than throw out hints of her disapproval. And now, as it seemed, the matter was of no moment. Henceforth she had far other apprehensions, but this first conflict of their views made her reticent. "'Just let me tell you how things stand,' Richard pursued, when his excitement had somewhat subsided, and he went on to explain the relations between old Mr. Mutimer and the Eldons, which in outline had been described to him by Mr. Yortel, and then— the will he had made left all the property to this young Eldon, who was to be trusty for a little money to be doled out to me yearly, just to save me from ruining myself, of course. Richard's lips curled in scorn. I don't know whether the lawyer thought we ought to offer to give everything up. He seemed precious anxious to make me understand that the old man had never intended us to have it, and that he did want these other people to have it. Of course, we've nothing to do with that. Luck's luck, and I think I know who'll make the best use of it. Why didn't you tell all this when Alice was here? inquired his mother, seeming herself again, though very grave. I'll tell you, I thought it over, and it seems to me it'll be better if Alice and Ari wait a while before they know what'll come to them they can't take anything till they're twenty-one alice is a good girl but he hesitated having caught his mother's eye he felt that this prudential course justified in a measure her anxiety she's a girl he pursued and we know that a girl with a lot of money gets run after by men who care nothing about her and a good deal about the money then it's quite certain Harry won't be any the better for fancying himself rich. He's going to give us trouble as it is, I can see that. We shall have to take another house, of course, and we can't keep them from knowing that there's money fallen to me. But there's no need to talk about the figures, and we can make them think it's only me that's better off, so much the better. Alice needn't go to work, and I'm glad of it. A girl's proper place is at home. You can tell her you want her to help in the new house. Harry had better keep his place a while. 
I shouldn't wonder if I find work for him myself before long I've got plans. But I shan't talk about them just yet. He spoke then of the legal duties which fell upon him as next of kin, explaining necessity of finding two sureties on taking out letters of administration. Mr. Yottel had offered himself for one. The other Richard hoped to find in Mr. Westley, a leader of the socialist movement. "'You want us to go into a big house?' asked Mrs. Mutimer. She seemed to pay little attention to the wider aspects of the change, but to fix on the details she could best understand, those which put her fears in a palpable shape. "'I didn't say a big one, but a larger than this. We're not going to play the do-nothing gentlefolk, but all the same our life won't and can't be what it has been. There's no choice. You worked hard all your life, mother, and it's only fair you should come in for a bit of rest. We'll find a house somewhere out Green Lane's way, or in Highbury, or Holloway. He laughed again. So there's the best of it, the worst of it, as you say. Just take a night to turn it over. Most likely I shall go to Belwick again to-morrow afternoon. He paused, and his mother, after bending her head to bite off an end of cotton, asked, "'You'll tell Emma?' "'I shall go round to-night.' A little later Richard left the house for this purpose. His step was firmer than ever, his head more upright. Walking along the crowded streets, he saw nothing. There was a fixed smile on his lips, the smile of a man to whom the world pays tribute. Never having suffered actual want and blessed with sanguine temperament, he knew nothing of that fierce exultation, that wrathful triumph over fate, which comes to men of passionate moods smitten by the lightning flash of unhoped prosperity. At present he was well disposed to all men even against capitalists and profit-mongers. He could not have railed heartily capitalist. Was he not one himself? Aye, but he would prove himself such a one as you do not meet with every day, and the foresight of deeds which should draw the eyes of men upon him, which should shout his name abroad, softened his judgments with the charity of satisfied ambition. He would be the glorified representative of his class. He would show the world how a self-taught working man conceived the duties and privileges of wealth. He would shame those dunder-headed, callous-hearted aristocrats, those ravening bourgeois. Opportunity. What else had he wanted? No longer would his voice be lost in petty lecture halls, answered only by the applause of a handful of mechanics. Ere many months had passed, crowds should throng to hear him. His gospel would be trumpeted over the land. To what might he not attain? The educated, the refined men and women. He was at the entrance of a dark passage, where his feet stayed themselves by force of habit. He turned out of the street and walked more slowly towards the house in which Emma Wine and her sisters lived. Having reached the door, he paused, but again took a few paces forward. Then he came back and rang the utmost of five bells. In waiting, he looked vaguely up and down the street. 
It was Emma herself who opened to him. The dim light showed a smile of pleasure and surprise. "'You've come to ask about Jane?' she asked. "'She hasn't been quite so bad since last night.' "'I'm glad to hear it. Can I come up?' "'Will you?' He entered, and Emma closed the door. It was pitch dark. "'I wish I'd brought a candle down,' Emma said, moving back along the passage. "'Mind, there's a pram at the foot of the stairs.' The preambulator was avoided successfully by both, and they ascended the bare boards of the staircase. On each landing prevailed a distinct odour. First came the damp smelly of newly washed clothes, then the scent of fried onions, then the workroom of some small craftsman exhaled varnish. The topmost floor seemed the purest. It was only stuffy. Richard entered an uncarpeted room which had to serve too many distinct purposes to allow of its being orderly in appearance. In one corner was a bed, where two little children lay asleep. Before the window stood a sewing machine, about which was heaped a quantity of linen. A table in the midst was half covered with a cloth, on which was placed a loaf and butter, the other half being piled with several dresses requiring the needle. Two black patches on the low ceiling showed in what positions the lamp stood by turns. Emma's eldest sister was moving about the room. Hers were the children. Her husband had been dead a year or more. She was about thirty years of age, and had a slatternly appearance. Her face was peevish, and seemed to grudge the half-smile with which it received the visitor. "'You've no need to look round you,' she said. We're in a regular pigsty, and likely to be. Where's there a chair? She shook some miscellaneous articles onto the floor to provide a seat. For mercy's sake, don't speak too loud and wake them, children. Bodie's had the earache. He's been crying all day. What with him and Jane, we've had a blessing. I can tell you. Can I put those supper things away, Emma? I'll do it was the other's reply. Won't you have a bit more, Kate? I've got no mind for eating. Well, you may cut a slice and put it on the mantelpiece. I'll go and sit with Jane. Richard sat and looked about the room absently. The circumstances of his own family had never fallen below the point at which it is possible to have regard for decency. The growing up of himself and of his brothers and sister had brought additional resources to meet extended knees, and the Mutimer characteristics had formed a safeguard against improvidence. He was never quite at his ease in this poverty-cumbered room, which he seldom visited. "'You ought to have a fire,' he said. "'There's one in the other room,' replied Kate. "'One has to serve us.' "'But you can't cook here.' "'Cook?' We can boil a potato, and that's about all the cooking we can do nowadays. She moved to the door as she spoke, and before leaving the room, took advantage of Richard's back being turned to make certain exhortatory signs to her sister. Emma averted her head. Kate closed the door behind her. Emma, having removed the eatables to the cupboard, came near to Richard and placed her arm gently upon his shoulders. He looked at her kindly. Kate's been so put about with Bertie, 
she said in a tone of excuse, and she was up nearly all last night. She never takes things like you do, Richard remarked. She's got more to bear. There's the children always making her anxious. She took Alf to the hospital this afternoon, and the doctor says he must have, I forget the name, somebody's food. But it's two and nine pence for ever such a little tin. They don't think as his deal'll ever come. Oh, I dare say they will, said Richard encouragingly. He had put his arm about her. Emma knelt down by him and rested her head against his shoulder. I'm tired, she whispered. I've had to go twice to the minories today. I'm so afraid I shan't be able to hold my eyes open with Jane. And Kate's tireder still. She did not speak as if seeking for sympathy. It was only the natural utterance of her thoughts in a moment of restful confidence. Uttermost weariness was a condition too familiar to the girl to be spoken of in any but a patient, matter-of-fact tone. But it was priceless soothing to let her forehead repose against the heart whose love was the one and sufficient blessing of her life. Her brown hair was very soft and fine. A lover of another kind would have pressed his lips upon it. Richard was thinking of matters more practical. At another time, his indignation, in such a case right good and manful, would have boiled over at the thought of these poor women crushed in slavery to feed the world's dastard selfishness. This evening his mood was more complacent, and he smiled as one at ease. "'Hadn't you better give up your work?' he said. Emma raised her head. In the few moments of repose her eyelids had drooped with growing heaviness. She looked at him as if she had just been awakened to some great surprise. "'Give up work? How can I?' "'I think I would. You'd have more time to give to Jane, and you could sleep in the day. And Jane had better not begin again after this. Don't you think it would be better if you left these lodgings and took a house, where there'd be plenty of room and fresh air?' "'Richard, what are you talking about?' He laughed quietly on account of the sleeping children. How would you like, he continued, to go and live in the country? Kate and Jane could have a house of their own, you know, in London. I mean, a house like ours. They could let a room or two if they chose. Then you and I could go where we liked. I was down in the Midland Counties yesterday, had to go on business, and I saw a house that would just suit us. It's a bit large. I dare say there's sixteen or twenty rooms, and there's trees growing all about it. A big garden. Emma dropped her head again and laughed, happy that Richard should jest with her so good-humouredly, for he did not often talk in the lighter way. She had read of such houses in the weekly story papers. It must be nice to live in them. It must be nice to be a denizen of paradise. I'm an earnest, Emma. His voice caused her to gaze at him again. "'Bring a chair,' he said, "'and I'll tell you something that'll keep you awake.' The insensible fellow, her sweet, pale, wandering face, was so close to his, the warmth of her drooping frame was against his heart, and he bade her sit apart to listen. She placed herself as he desired, sitting with her hands together in her lap, 
her countenance troubled a little wishing to smile yet not quite venturing he told his story told it in all details with figures that filled the mouth that rolled forth like gold upon bank scales this is mine he said mine and yours have you seen a child listening to a long fairy tale every page a new adventure of wizardry a story of elf or mermaid or gnome of treasures underground guarded by enchanted monsters of bells heard silverly in the depth of old forests of castles against the sunset of lakes beneath the quiet moon know you how light gathers in the eyes dreaming on vision after vision ever more intensely realized yet ever of an unknown world how when at a length the reader's voice is silent the eyes still see the ears still hear until a movement breaks the spell and with a deep involuntary sigh the little one gazes here and there wondering so emma listened and so she came back to consciousness looking about the room incredulous had she been overcome with weariness had she slept and dreamt one of the children stirred and uttered a little wailing sound she stepped lightly to the bedside bent for a moment saw that all was well again and came back on tiptoe the simple duty had quieted her throbbing heart she seated herself as before what about the country house now said richard i don't know what to say it's more than i can take into my head you're not going to say like mother did that it was the worst piece of news she'd ever heard your mother said that emma was startled had her thought passed lightly over some danger she examined her mind rapidly i suppose she said it richard explained just because she didn't know what else to say that's about the truth but there certainly is one thing i'm a little anxious about myself i don't care for either alice or arry to know the details of this windfall they won't come in for their share till they are of age and it's just as well they should think it's only a moderate little sum so don't talk about it emma the girl was still musing on mrs mutimer's remark she merely shook her head you didn't think you were going to marry a man with his thousands and be a lady well i shall have more to say in a day or two but at present my idea is that mother and the rest of them shall go into a larger house and that you and kate and jane shall take our place i don't know how long it'll be before those elden people can get out of wanley manor but as soon as they do why then there's nothing to prevent you and me going into it will that suit you ma'am we shall really live in that big house certainly we shall i've got a life's work before me there as far as i can see at present the furniture belongs to mrs elden i believe we'll furnish the place to suit ourselves may i tell my sisters richard just tell them that i've come in for some money and a house perhaps that's enough and look here i'll leave you this 5 pound note to go on with you must get jane whatever the doctor says and throw all that sewing out of the windows we'll have no more convict labor tell jane to get well just as soon as it suits her but all this money i've plenty the lawyer advanced me some for present needs 
Now it's getting late. I must go. I'll write and tell you when I shall be home again. He held out his hand, but the girl embraced him with a restrained tenderness which in her spoke so eloquently. Are you glad, Emma? he asked. Very glad for your sake. And just a bit for your own, eh? I never thought about money, she answered. It was quite enough to be your wife. It was the simple truth. End of chapter 5 Recording by Farheen